You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Brittany Vickers. Brittany is an actress, writer, and teacher based in New York City. I'm grateful to have her on the podcast today and to share her voice. She's a fellow Juilliard alum, although we weren't there at the same time, but we were, um, were friends on social media. And back in December of 2020, I witnessed this series of posts that she put up, 15 posts, about her experiences in the past year dealing with a rare form of cancer. And I admired her honesty in sharing her story so much and just her obvious artistic heart in processing her experiences through her writing in that way. So I reached out to her on an impulse just to say that I, I know we don't know each other well, but if you are ever looking for an audio record, a documentation of your experiences, I'd be happy to offer you the podcast for that. And she agreed. So on the day that we were recording, we were just talking about what form the conversation might take, and we just basically got into it before we technically started. So we just hit record with the audio engineer and continued on our way. So it won't take quite the same structure you're used to hearing, but um, it's a really moving conversation. It made a big impact on me. We talk a lot about her experiences in the last year, but also touch obviously on her um, her artistic path and her passions. And yeah, just the fact that your health, your sickness, your body, your self as an artist and a human, it's all one. It's all the same. So thank you, Brittany, for sharing with me. You can check out her work at brittvickers.art, B-R-I-T-T-V-I-C-A-R-S dot A-R-T. I hope you enjoy the 174th episode of The Compass. for starting to write about my journey. I've always been a writer. I've always kept journals. Um, at school, my teacher, Becky Guy, yelled at me for taking too many notes once. I feel like someone could have done that to me at school and they didn't. My classmates made yeah. fun of me so much. All the time. And I wrote <laughs> and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And I, I um, unfortunately, because of a very epic Brooklyn journey, do no longer have my writing. They're somewhere in a storage unit in Brooklyn, um, potentially. <laughs> so from that time period, at least. And um, right out of school, I, I began uh, teaching a lot. And I became a performing arts teacher at Queens High School. And my mm -hmm. message to my kids, they were young adults, they were 17, between 16 and 17 juniors, I would always tell them that vulnerability is their biggest strength. And um, I think that that's something that has always been within me. I'm, I'm very interested and afraid of vulnerability. I think that's, you know, why we're actors as well, to open up something that we can share uh, vulnerability of ourself married to our characters. And so when I decided to write this whole, you know, 15 part series on surviving illness, it was actually, you know, about four months after I actually found and had my tumor removed. And that was really lonely. 
I was really, really lonely. And I, I, I wanted to share so that I could have support. And I was really afraid to have support. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I started writing. I'm sure it was only magnified by the fact that you were literally isolated in the middle of this pandemic at the same time. Yeah, I had a, a friend of mine named Melissa. She, I know her. She's the wife of um, Ed Highland, who I know in the theater community because he played Polonius in a Hamlet I was in in Hartford. And um, uh, she's my angel. She she had breast cancer, and uh, last March, exactly a year ago, um, I was you know we were all locking down, and I just started feeling underneath my, you know, doing a self-exam, like just checking out my armpit hairs and being like, oh, is that an ingrown hair? Like, and I felt this, this lump and it, and it hurt and Mm. I couldn't sleep at night. And I thought, oh, well, the pandemic is really hard. Like, this is scary. Maybe that's what's going on psychologically, but I, I was in a lot of pain. And I thought, okay, I should reach out and see to the, my breast cancer survivor friend who um, I love, see if she could give me any advice. And I, I didn't want to reach out. I was really scared. And I finally, there was just something in me after a couple of weeks that was like, this thing's not going away. It's not an ingrown hair. It's very painful. I'm scared. Melissa, I think there's something wrong. And she immediately said, here's my doctor's number. Call tomorrow. You need to go. And I did. I, I was able to get an ultrasound that week. And uh, the pandemic was really hard to get anything at that time. You know, it was late April, early May. And I found out that her doctor didn't take my insurance, so I had to pay out of pocket. I I had no money. I had to ask my grandmother for $400 to get an ultrasound, and thank God she gave it to me. Um, And then I got a call the next week that said, this looks like something. It doesn't look like cancer, but you need to get a biopsy. And the biopsy didn't happen until July because- because of the pandemic. So yeah, that, that isolation was really scary. And thank God at that time, I didn't know it was cancer. There was never a time when I was, you know, had the cancer in my body that I knew that it was cancer. And I'm so grateful for that because I, Mm. I remember the feeling of it being inside of me. And had I known that, I think I would have been really, really terrified. Um, Rightfully so. Rightfully so. So, but at that point, thank you God just for thought, for Melissa. Yeah, yeah. At that point, you just thought it was a growth or a cyst or something that just needed to be removed. Yeah, I was yeah. like, yeah, it's a cyst. It's a sebaceous cyst. I like Googled everything. I'm like, <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. It's a lymph node. It's a sebaceous cyst. It's an ingrown hair. It's all of these things, and it can't be cancer. I'm 28. It cannot yeah. be cancer. Um, so I went into the to the doctor and she got the fine needle aspiration. And I remember laying there and I saw on the on the uh, ultrasound it said Brittany Vickers, January 14th, 1992, 28 years old. And it was just this moment of like, 
oh my God, what what's happening? What's happening in the world? What's happening in my body? What's happening? Um, and it, and like I said, it was so painful. They, they had to do the biopsy about like three or four times to get deep enough to get the cells. And it's like they just scrape the inside. And um, I'm really used to being in hospitals. I'm used to needles. I'm, I'm used to that because uh, growing up, and I wrote a little bit about this in one of my posts, that my grandfather was very ill. My grandparents adopted me when I was 10 and um, were always in my life, but that was the time for them to take over raising me as my mother was a single mother. And um, he was really sick. He worked for the post office for 30 years. And the day after he retired, he uh, was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Oh my gosh. Yeah, the day after. So he had prostate cancer, uh, triple bypass surgery on his heart, diabetes, um, the list goes on. He had thyroid cancer. He had a kidney cancer removed. Um, so he was called the million dollar man <laughs> at the veterans association. Mm. They were like, he's the million dollar man because there's millions of dollars in his body of, of mm. medical treatment. So, um, that always really triggered me being at the hospital. And then yeah. when I got sick, you know, um, and I can talk more about that as well, but it was really like, I felt like I was healing myself for my grandfather and he's been passed away for five years, but psychologically I was really in tune with like, this is something that he went through. I am with him. I am connected to him. And he's always felt like a guardian angel. So having him there for me when I was scared, having him there when I eventually got radiation, um, I would have, you know, really palpable visions of him holding my hand, which was incredibly emotional. As yeah, you can imagine. What a beautiful <laughs> thing to have happening alongside this terrifying moment. Terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Terrifying. And the the surgeon said after that aspiration, you know, there are some spindle cells which are not indicative of cancer. They Spindle cells can happen when you have an injury. They can happen for a number of reasons. So she said, I'm, you know, really, really uh, confident that it's not cancer, but let's get it out next week. And so, you know, then there's the fear of like, oh my God, I've got to have a surgery. And... Mm -hmm. My husband, uh, Thomas, he just said, yeah, you have to have it. We're going. And we did. And I, I got that first surgery in July. The um, biology of the, the tumor, which at that point was the size of a lemon. Wow. Um, it, yeah, it was this big. Um, yeah, my scars here. So it was, mm -hmm. it was like that. Um, five centimeters. Wow. Uh, it was gone. I was healing. I had physical therapy. I was doing everything I could. I had physical therapy three times a week during the pandemic, which was really scary to go down there. Um, and by September, it had been seven weeks, and I was having a small um, dinner party with a neighbor, and her mother was in town, and she just had a new baby, and it was very joyous. And her mother survived breast cancer. And, um, she said, how are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm good. You know, no news is good news. I haven't heard what the 
biopsy really is that the the um, that the information they're giving me back the results um, and everyone's saying no news is good news you know so no right. news is good news and she looks at me very seriously and she says well no news could be good news or it could mean that you slipped through the cracks and I just had like a light bulb moment and fear hmm. again a lot of fear and um I called the next day. It was the Friday of Labor Day weekend. And I called my doctor at noon. They didn't call back uh, until 5.31 p.m. She called me from her house phone, upstate New York. And she said, Brittany, um, I just wanted to call you. We got your results in. Um, you know, it took so long. There were a lot of things going on, but um, it is cancer. And it was just like that. And my, like my surgeon he probably did fall through the cracks. Like they had to figure out between noon and five. And what I had did. Happened. And I and I I did. I looked at the mm. pathology when it came in and it had actually come in a week and a half before. Mm. Um so that was hard to process. You know, you it's like a bad it's not a bad movie. It's a it's an emotional drama movie that we've all seen before if you've watched any type of um movie on on cancer or healing or even breaking bad and you get the news and you really do the world stops and um my husband comes in and he goes is it cancer and I just looked at him and I went with the phone still on and she says so we're gonna get you in on Tuesday and we're gonna go back in and we're gonna have to get some more tissues we'll have another surgery and you're just you're gonna be just fine and the the phone call last, lasted three and a half minutes Oh my God. That's exactly <laughs> where I was. I was sitting right here in my living room and I, I didn't cry immediately, but, but my husband, um, sat down and, and he cried and we cried. And I, I kind of have this image of us, like we were buoys mm. in this salty water of our tears just for a whole weekend it was just darkness no lights on it was labor day weekend whatever that meant during a <laughs> pandemic there was no laboring going on i mean for the majority of americans and those who were laboring were doing so at the cost of their lives so there were barbecues outside there there it was all very strange and dreamlike and um we walked through central park and I saw a group of women African dancing. I saw children playing and there we sat next to this algae pond with our two little dachshunds and nothing had changed. Everything had changed and nothing had changed. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the world, I had been in Central Park the day before. It was all the same, the same walk, the same sensations, but I was diagnosed with cancer. And... There's no way to describe that. And I I walked with my husband and, and he had a pack of cigarettes and he gave it away to a homeless couple <laughs> um, or a houseless. Um, and they they were standing there and they're like, thank you. God bless you. Like we needed these cigarettes and, and we both knew that we were never going to smoke again. And... And then on, and we, they're just horrible. You know, Leah, like you don't have anyone to call. It's Monday. Like who, who do you call? Do you, I'm not dead. So 
Do I call my grandmother? Do I call my mom? Right. And when you don't, they didn't give you any information, any concrete information about what might happen next or just um, that. Yeah, so what would you might... tell them if you called them? Yeah, exactly. Just, you know, I might have to have radiation. I don't think I need to have chemo. Um, I have a very rare one in a million cancer that had I found it, if it was just one centimeter, one, you know, millimeter bigger, it would have been stage two, then I would have had to have chemo. Mm. So I was, I was very lucky and very lucky. Lucky became a strange, a strange thing. I, last summer I found, um, you're not going to believe this, but I found never in my life have I found a four-leaf clover. I found 21 four-leaf clovers. Oh my goodness. And, and that's insane. And it was in a park. <laughs> and I can't tell you, like, I, I still have evidence. So that's the only reason I know I'm not delusional. But I, I said to my husband the other day, I was like, I'm the girl who found 21 four-leaf clovers and got diagnosed with one of the rarest cancers yeah. that you, you can be diagnosed with. So that was the first part of just discovering it. Um, are you, and I, this is a little bit of a tangent, but are you someone who yeah. has looked for um, or connected with signs in the past? I noticed, yeah, I noticed, you know, several that you highlighted through your posts when you were telling your story online. Um, is that something that you've always kind of noticed throughout your life or is, is it a new thing? I'm very sensitive to signs. I have been, um, for a long time, I think um, I think we all look back on our lives, and um, intuition is very important to me. In especially now, I think it, you know to answer that question, I go to like the intuition of finding my tumor and saying this isn't right. There's something not right, and you can relate as a performer. Our bodies are our in- instruments, so um, that intuition and then having that intuition come through in signs. And I think that for me, signs are really anything and, and, um, a sign can be nothing too. You know, it it can be a simple, like that seagull is beautiful. Um, it makes me feel something. So absolutely there, there there've been very poignant signs in my life. Um, simple signs, um, nonchalant signs. I, I, I love that question because, um, and that you found that in the writing, um, especially with the end with when I, I saw the sign on the subway. Oh my goodness. Um, I couldn't believe it. So there's lots of things like that, that I'm just <laughs> like, and, and it goes to as well. I think that my body showing me the sign not only from exterior signs, right? That's a lot of what we receive if we're open mm-hmm. to the world. Anyone living in New York when I was 18, you know, I'm from Colorado. I would walk down the streets and be like, oh, there's a shoelace in front of me. What does that mean? <laughs> like, oh my God, that homeless person just said that I was a weirdo. What does that mean? Like, it's like- <laughs> There's just so much you know, input coming in from the city. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So when when I got this sign from my body- which was on my left side, really close to my heart. Um, it was, it was the sign in a way that helped me through the pandemic. I thought, wow, the world is wild right now. And there is a literal manifestation in my body that needs to come out. 
mm-hmm. of my own my own you know struggles, but also it made me feel very aligned with yeah. Wh- how interesting that things kind of had to. I mean, obviously, there's all of this um, flurry that you must have witnessed to a certain extent being in the hospital system during this time, but. Yeah, for a lot of us in our daily lives, things came to a screeching halt, and yeah. that this discovery for you was aligned with that, and kind of, in some ways, gave you the space. I would assume to mm-hmm. focus on this yeah. in a way that might not have Absolutely. been possible if things were going on as normal. I I totally agree, and you know, I my world came kind of to a screeching halt six months before the pandemic, which was, I was, um, I stopped working at the school that I had been at for two years. Mm. Um, you know, as an actor, there, there wasn't really any opportunity. I was getting one audition every two months. Um, I had gone on this journey to meet my biological father, which was very deep and, um, required a lot of courage. And um, just for that background, my father is in prison and he's been in prison my entire life. And um, I had never known him. I'd never seen a picture of him really. And, and I decided to write to him. And I wrote him a letter um, in July. And upon him replying, I found out I had two brothers, one of which would call me and started to develop a relationship and eventually talked to him on the phone and talked to my father on the phone. And then it was, we were going to meet. And this is something that I always knew I wanted to know my origin, to know if my darkness was from him, to know how they related to a a stranger asked me, well, why do you want to do that? Why do you want to meet someone in prison for life? And I looked at the person. I had been drinking some beers. We had like gone into this whole saga about meeting my biological father with a stranger. Mm-hmm. The stranger looked at me and said, why do you want to meet your father? And I looked at him and I said, have you seen your father's face? And he went, well, yeah. And I said, I haven't. I've never looked at my father. And I need to do that. So upon meeting him, I sunk into a very deep depression that lasted for about four and a half months. Hmm. I had suffered from depression once before that I didn't realize when I got out of Juilliard Um, at 21, felt really lost, very supported by the institution and then terrified and let go. Yeah. Which I'm sure, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) a lot of people who have been at Juilliard can relate to or any type of conservatory. And I was in a depression for for those four months, and um, my husband didn't know. My husband was working. He's a photographer. He worked until, you know, two in the morning sometimes, and I would wake up in the morning, Leah, and I would look at my phone, and I would know that my father was probably going to call me. My usual day was like, I woke up at nine, dad called at 10. Uh, my brother called at 11 because, you know, you only get 30 minutes on prison phones. Um, and then he would go into lockdown. And then I talked to my brother from sometimes 11 AM until like two, then, yeah, and I was getting, that's a lot. That's, yeah. You had so much to learn, but that's yeah, a lot. I was, 
Exactly. You know, we were catching up and, and exploring what this meant to be related by blood. And, and then my father would call and then I would, and then my husband would still, you know, he worked really long days. And then I would go and I'd get a pack of beer and then I'd spend the night on the phone with my brother. And one beer went to two beers and two beers went to four beers. And, um, there, it became very disturbing because my, my brother was also in prison for a time as well. And I became terrified again. I was very just um, in it. And, and that's when the depression started to suck. And I, I would turn my phone off. I would keep it on airplane mode. I would be nervous if they would call, if I didn't answer what they would think. Um, the something about prison is that the walls are impenetrable. And you cannot, and I mean the walls physically, but the wall between my, my father and I. And when he would call, I can never call him. So it was like, he was the one who could call. He was the one. Um, and I tell this story because from that depression, um, I decided to end the relationship with my father. We, we mutually decided. And um, sorry. We mutually, oh no, don't worry. We mutually decided. And um, in January, when I turned 28, that was my 27th year, which I also believe is symbol symbolic um, in, in uh, the history of artists in the world. But um, <laughs> uh, I, I received, uh, I, I stopped talking to him right before my birthday and I got so sick. I could have been coronavirus. I, I believe it was the flu. Um, I'd been babysitting some of kids in my building and I, I got sick, Leah. I was, it was like him leaving my life physically. My body was like, get him out. And I got a fever and I got a head fog and I was supposed to be in Paris two days I like after I began to get sick and my husband, it was my birthday present to go to Paris. My husband's French. And he woke up the morning that we were supposed to leave. And he goes, you know, if you're, you have a fever of 101, like you can't get on the plane. And I said to him, you are not leaving me to go to Paris on my birthday. Like <laughs> this is not happening. This is not happening in my life. And so I, I, uh, you know, probably wasn't very smart now that we know there was a pandemic, but I got on the plane mm. and I, I went to Paris. And um, that was the day that my husband applied for our health insurance that would later save my life. So all of that to say, these signs, these symbols, um, I really believe from my experience from this past year that um, our bodies physicalize what's happening emotionally. And it happens on a, on a metaphysical level. It happens on a deep DNA level. Um, and I'm really not surprised that I got cancer after meeting mm -hmm. my father, after um, this riveting and life-changing experience. And I'm, I'm grateful that I was able to into it and to listen to my body. And that's another reason why I wanted to share my story because so many people, my grandfather included, feel something mm -hmm. and they're terrified of the doctor and they don't go and they don't go. And I 
if I wouldn't have gone, you and I would not have done having this same conversation right now. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, we all know that stress can do really powerful things to people's bodies. And that, so I don't know, you know, who knows what was already happening with your cells, but I'm sure that stress must have had something something to do psychologically or physically with what you ended up going through. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. I don't know if that's I, a controversial thing to say. I don't want to offend anybody no, who's been I, dealing with I don't cancer think by saying in some way that it's to, something's to blame in a certain way. But Oh, well, and, and, and thank you. You, you don't offend me and I, you know, that my, my cancer journey, everyone is different. So I do thank you for saying that. I also, from a very early on, I had a moment where I was really angry at myself. Mm. I was really mad because I thought that I thought to myself, like, this is something psychologically I did. Right. Why did I reach out to my father? And there was a lot of shame around that. And now that I'm, I was able to write about it and share about it, I realize that for me, it's totally true. It is totally and completely true. The cancer was caused by stress. Mm. The cancer was caused by carcinogens in my middle-class American home, eating Kraft cheese and Lunchables. The cancer was caused because I had a genetic disposition to it. My cancer was caused because I didn't feel like I um, fulfilled the expectations of my family when I got out of the best conservatory in the world. Um, my cancer was caused by everything. And, and for, for me to say that I couldn't have said that, um, when I was first diagnosed, even though I felt it. And even though I knew it, um, it is everything. It's Mm. everything. It's not just one thing. Right. And I think that that's kind of, that expands on, uh, that's such a great response to what I said, because looking at it that way right? It's not, you're not blaming this one thing you did mm-hmm. or this one thing in your environment for causing it, but those are all included in all the, in all the things that could have influenced and it did influence what happened. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and e- like even more so that. now, thank you. And, and even more so now I've been thinking, um, there's been a lot of, Uh, what I like to call angels on my path who have given me great advice during this time. Um, An angel for me is the stranger I run into or um, my friend's mother. um, Her name is Julie. The angels that I found on the way um, also come through forms of like gifts. I had my friend Billy, his mother sent me this beautiful like embroidered peacock scarf. And I said, thank you so much. And she said, uh, don't worry, your angels gave it to me. It came to me through your angels to give to you. So I really like those ideas of like physical manifestations, again, mm-hmm. of the things that are for us. But um, yeah, I, I think that another thing I've been exploring lately, um, I was given a book called You Are the Placebo. And um, it's all about how when we have a memory, when we think of something traumatic, For example, if you have a very traumatic experience with public speaking, for me, it's playing piano. I get terrified of, I I played piano for seven years and I, 
I'm so scared. You put me in front of an audience of 2,000 people, I'll do a whole Shakespeare play one person. <laughs> but like you, you asked me to play Mary Had a Lim- Little Lamb in front of like you and your daughter, I would just be like... <laughs> And, and it's because I have memories of that from my childhood. So um, the kind of thought that I've been exploring now is when we have a traumatic memory, we replay it and our body gets um, the same chemical feelings as if it had yes. just happened. And so then we start to think it again and then again, and our bodies almost get addicted to that physical feeling, uh-huh. even though it's bad for us. And those type of trauma, the stress right now that we're feeling, that we're, you know, reliving, going into a pandemic, we have reminders of that when we get our masks on, all of those things we've become desensitized to on a physical DNA level is actually, you know, opening those cells, opening room for those cells to change and, um, and to physicalize in different types of illness, or even the best example is all my gray hairs I have from Juilliard. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and I'm actually I'm going to use a question that you wrote in one of your posts. Yeah, I was going to ask, how are you feeling about your cancer now? Wow, thank you for asking that. Um, thank you for asking that because, um, I wrote it and you read it and, um, that's probably the, the biggest gift you can give me by, um, by asking me because I think, um, for me, my grandfather never talked about that and, um, it's really brave to actually ask someone how they really are. So I feel vulnerable, um, but I, that's good. Um, I, I, how, how do I feel about my cancer now? Oh, and thank you for asking because I, I don't get asked it often. Well, just for the, the listeners, you wrote, you wrote that in a piece about how interacting with your friends kind of, I don't want to say it was advice to people, but you know, uh, advice to, <laughs> to friends on how to, how to check in with someone, how to be there for someone. And one of the yeah. things you wrote was asking that question outright. Yeah, people were really scared to talk about it. I'm, I'm sure I've had moments where I've been scared to ask people questions like that. Yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes it's not the right time. Sometimes I just want to watch a stupid movie and or watch Snow White. That always makes me feel better. And sometimes, like, I want my my best friend who made me dinner to look at me and go, I love you. Are you okay? How do you feel? So thank you for asking that. I, I have um, a question that I ask every day with one of my best friends named Sochi. She lives in New Mexico and we always ask each other, what does your heart look like today? Mm-hmm. And so in that kind of imagery, how do I feel about my cancer? I feel like my cancer is like a shield. And what I mean by that is I feel that finally my cancer has gone from something that could be used and weaponized against me to something that is protecting me. And that is my armor against everything. All of the treatment I've gotten, all of the doctors I've talked to, all the friends who have supported me with 
either money or food or a hug or music or new boots. Um, all of these things that have come into my life, I see as like this fortified building. And now I feel like my cancer is like, I don't know if it's a part of the building. I don't know if it's like my secret service or like, you're never getting back in here, but I don't, whatever it is, I've built this building now. And this, and I was actually like, I get a massage every Thursday to help with my healing process. And I was in the car today, I was looking at all the buildings in Manhattan. I was like, is that what my cancer building is? Like, is that what my building is? And when you look at a building in New York, it's like, Every brick has been laid, like a tidal wave could hit the city and, you know, which I don't pray because that could happen one day. I hope not with the world changing, but, but like it, 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 I feel strong. I feel my cancer. I feel how I feel about my cancer now is that I feel it has created strength in me. I still have moments where I wake up in the middle of the night, fearful. And um, even today, I told my my masseuse, Georgette, that um, she said, when is your next scan? In six months. And I said, no, my next scan is April 28th. And then three months after that is my next one. And then it's going to be every three months for the next two years and every six months forever. She just looked at me and she went, I'm just going to process that. And I realized like, it's so easy for me to talk about it now because I've been able to share it. But that information it's huge. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's huge. It's huge. Um, so yeah, there are moments when I, I still wake up in the middle of the night, mostly what I feel every on a daily basis, aside from being strong, I feel so grateful to be alive. And not only because of the cancer, because of coronavirus, because of 500,000 people who aren't here, I feel so unbelievably grateful to be alive. Isn't it interesting that sometimes it takes these events like this to bring all those people in your life, like to to bring it to the forefront of your mind that you have that structure around you and that support system, mm -hmm. which has been there. You know, these people who love you, the people who you've built these friendships with. I remember my, my mom had a health scare right after my daughter was born, like five days after my daughter was born, she wound up in the hospital wow. and we never really found out what it was. It seemed like it might be a stroke and it wasn't, but, um, when when it was over she was saying like I just I can't believe like how much you all love me and I just like I'm so like I'm so grateful that I'm okay but I'm also just like I couldn't believe how you all came together and you know part of me was like well we're your family we're your kids like of course we always tell you that we love you we've always been here but she just was so overwhelmed by the the show of support in that moment I don't know what I'm trying to say about that, but it's just interesting that when it, when it becomes um, physical no. like that and so strong and amplified. Oh yeah. And I, I think too, during a pandemic, when I have, you know, a neighbor of mine said, isn't your mom flying in? And 
I thought about it and I was like, no, she's not because she's, she works in a nursing home. Like she can't. And had it been any other time, those people would have, Mm -hmm. I mean, people would have. And Melissa also said to me, um, my, my friend who survived, she said, Brittany, this is stressful when you're not in a pandemic. So just remember that. And I couldn't, I was like, oh, right. I'm going every day to get radiation therapy. Like that's not normal. That's not normal. I'm terrified to be in the car that I have to take because the train is dangerous. So that overwhelming love, um, I had friends call me, ex-lovers call me like on the phone, like not, not even just a text message. Like (laughs) I had their parents calling me. I had like, you know, best friends from elementary school that broke my heart, which I, you know, still I'm getting over one of them, but she called me (laughs) and like, you know, and, and also then your ego kind of gets involved because it's like, oh, well, why didn't that person call me? You know what I mean? Like, do they know that I had cancer? And so it's this weird thing, but I I do. And it it also made me more, um, have more availability for the people that I love. Like uh, a lot of people in my life have, you know, told me what's going on in their life during the pandemic and they'll find themselves talking about themselves and they go, oh, but I'm sorry. Like you just survived cancer. And I go, well, I'll tell you if I can't listen to you right now, but cancer has actually created this space within me Hmm. as opposed to like, you know, uh, yeah. in my building, if we go back to that, like there's this space like a, for everybody's room and like, it's all accommodated (laughs) because I know what that meant to me when like just people. And that was also a part of my surviving illness posts was that, it gave the opportunity for people who could not be with me to feel like they could talk to me about it yeah. or feel that that I was going through something and I needed I needed those likes. I needed those comments. And I don't think that we really admit that with the strangeness of social media. But yeah, I did. But almost I like really you were did. giving them permission to to get involved or to reach out even if maybe they exactly. had heard and but they weren't sure if you wanted that or whatever it was. Yeah. And yeah. and it also, you know, mentally, I think the two other moments that I've had my depression in my life which were right out of school as an artist getting out of a conservatory, you feel not like an artist. I I believe. I mean, it feels especially being at the caliber of like you're an actress. You know, you're an actor and really feeling like for me at least, that I, there were certain steps that were supposed to happen that were not happening on my timeline. Yeah. I Uh, I felt experience. Yeah. And, Mm -hmm. and I felt more lonely then than I ever felt when really I had, you know, 17 classmates who just got out of school who were down the street. I had teachers, I had, you know, um, people from elementary school who lived in the city. I had my family, but I think that isolation um, and that inability to share for fear of being judged puts a a real distance between myself and really what I need 
and what I want. And so the cancer afforded me to have that, to welcome the love, which is also very hard. It's really hard when people are like, I care about you. You're like, oh, this makes me feel like, do <laughs> you love me? Like, what? <laughs> nice and it's awkward. <laughs> it's so awkward. It's so awkward. But I, I just, I mean, honestly, if any, I, the fact that you read it even, and we're in the same, you know, social circles, but kind of a few degrees apart means that maybe someone read it who had something on their body or someone told their friend that they, you know, and, and then we can take steps towards our healing. And so if, if that writing offered anything, if not just for me to, you know, get approval and love, which was important for my healing, but if anybody like with Melissa, when she told me at a dinner in 2015, Brittany, this is how I found my cancer. I was touching my, my boob. And then I went to the doctor and if you ever find anything, you go. And so I, the first person I messaged was Mm. Melissa, you know, so it makes my, she said this to me too. It makes my cancer journey worth it if that can spark any type of love for someone to go and get something checked out. And whether that's physically with cancer or even you talk a lot about on your show, seeking help Mm -hmm. um, through therapy as well. So Yeah. I think we could talk for a very long time. We might have to do a second, a part two episode with you about more more things that you are involved with as an artist. But I know we only have a limited amount of time with our recording session today. So I do want to ask a little bit questions focused on your artist journey. Thank you. I'm curious. I mean, you had sent me the trailer to a documentary that you and your husband were making about you contacting your dad, Mm -hmm. um, which was so powerful. I want to see the entire thing. But also then just your writing, reflecting on this experience. I'm curious how you're feeling as an artist right now, what you're kind of, what's percolating in your mind, and if that sort of creation, self-reflective creation has been something mm-hmm. that has always been a part of your journey or if it's something that's just blossoming now. And as actors, we can be such interpretive artists sometimes that it can feel a little you know, stuck when you don't have someone else's material mm. to work on. So how, yeah. yeah, where do you picture yourself right now as an artist? What are you feeling? That's it. What are you feeling? <laughs> yeah. No, thank you so much. And and thank you for giving me the time to talk about my, uh, my cancer journey as it does pertain and go right into um, this question, because I feel like, God, Leah, we could really talk for a long time, but I, I really had a lot of demons, um, come out when I got out of school. Demons meaning insecurity. Um, you know, I won the Hausman award for Shakespeare. Like I was like on top of the world. Um, like I, I've, I've done Shakespeare. I say that cause I'm a Shakespeare nerd. Like my, my writing, my writing name is Western Bard. Like I really <laughs> love Shakespeare. And so I have done it since I was five. And so getting out on a high of that and then being confronted to the real world, um, 
knowing nothing about the real world, being a girl from Colorado who was really not very cultured and like way too open for anybody to like (laughs) take advantage of me or, you know, hopefully my intuition kicked in a lot of those times. But I, um, I feel like I'm just seven years later, um, just allowing myself to become who I am. And that might sound vague and it might sound poetic. I'm not sure, but I, I feel like I, the cancer, like just was all of this insecurity and it came out of my body. It was taken out. I was saved. And I finally feel like, I don't know where my writing will go, but I know that I love to write. And I don't really, you know, know where that self tape is going to go, but I know that I love making films with my husband. I know there are things that now I just know that I love and I can do it because I love it. And that doesn't make it easy. It doesn't make it like all green roses, but I definitely have a new confidence of, um, and self love. Like I just, I'm like loving myself. I'm like, Brit, you know, it's okay that you didn't write that feature film yet. It's okay that you, you know, look at what you are doing. I've, I've created my spaces really important to me creatively. So I surround myself with a lot of books. I surround myself with a lot of pens, like got like pens everywhere (laughs) just so that I can write down and, you know, that opportunity for inspiration to hit. Yeah. And that inspiration doesn't have to be a full-blown project. Inspiration can come from like, uh, like I used the seagull metaphor before, but like just a seagull and like I can doodle it. And this is a little composition book I have that I call my seed book. And so I just take it with me and I write little seeds and, and just seeing which one will grow. So I'm really curious about myself right now. I'm very gentle with myself right now. I Last week, I spent the whole week, you know, really enjoying unemployment, meaning I like did what I wanted. And I'm constantly reminding myself that right now. We just went through a war. We just went through a war. So why am I putting pressure on myself to make an immersive theater project in a some space that I have no idea where it is <laughs> and trying to like see if I should draft emails already and like get like right. an LLC for this production company. I'm like, a lot of the time on my social media, I put like a view from my apartment with the word breathe and I'm just breathing a lot. I'm breathing in all of my inspiration, my ideas, and I'm exhaling. Um, It sounds very yoga teacher of me, but I am exhaling any expectation to perform. Because it's too painful otherwise. I know. I think that's wonderful. That's so wonderful. I think that's, I mean, obviously you're going through your own individual journey, but I think all of us could do with that right now. It's it's interesting. Yeah, there's no pressure. It's interesting to see different people's paths to as this pandemic like 
quote unquote winds down or things are about to get mm-hmm. back to normal and what does that mean and what are people's expectations of you when I know for me as a um as a parent like coming I'm not even coming out of this yet still going through this it's a little bit like but well, I'm yeah. I'm just functioning and I'm, I'm I'm trying to let myself be okay with like I'm just functioning on like yeah. getting by I'm not trying to be innovative right now I'm not trying to be yeah. stepping things up and I know that's not convenient for everyone but I this is this is all you get from me right now <laughs> yeah and you know, you know what the fact that you can get out of bed and take care of your family is like I go back to being grateful for the day like that is the victory and I think that a friend I know a friend of mine told me when I was going through grief because I think what we're going through right now are the beginning stages of grief or somewhere in the middle, um, slowly getting to acceptance. He said to me when my grandfather passed away, sing if you need to sing, cry if you need to cry, laugh if you need to laugh, and keep going. And I think with my creative process, that's, that's I'm happy being there right now. I'm happy being there. For listening to the compass podcast if you find these conversations valuable to your life as an artist and would like to support the ongoing production of the compass please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com the compass podcast pledges start at as little as one dollar a month and anything you can give would be greatly appreciated also if you have a moment please review and follow in itunes every little bit helps other listeners to find the podcast i'd like to thank the following people for their generosity the Compass cover art is by Kim Miller, music by Brendan Spieth, audio assistance from Monic Choksi, and a special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez. See you next time. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.